Good morning, CLV. Welcome. If you're new here, uh, my name is Justin. If I don't have the privilege of meeting you, uh, I serve as one of the pastors here, uh, specifically the pastor of care and city groups. Uh, it's always a joy, though, when I get to be back in the pulpit ministry. It's been amazing for me to be able to sit in with you all as we've been preaching through the book of Genesis. We'll find ourselves in chapter 30 if you have a Bible. Uh, before we get to that, though, just a quick kind of recap of what we've uh, taught so far last week, we were teaching about Jacob on his way to Uncle Laban. He's just fled from his brother Esau after things went south between them. Uh, and in between, we saw in Genesis chapter 29 that he is met by God and has this uh, miraculous divine encounter and has this dream of a ladder. And now we continue that story and fast forward into Genesis chapter 30. Uh, he has now met and got to Laban's house, his uncle. He's met Laban's two daughters, Rachel and Leah. And what's going to happen here is he's going to be very attracted to Rachel straight out of the gate. And he will set his eyes to marry her. Uh, Laban is crafty just like Jacob. And the trickster gets tricked himself actually gets tricked into marrying the other sister, Leah. So imagine that on your next day of the wedding. <laughs> After that, you wake up to the wrong woman. Um, so that, that's what happens. And it just happens to be Rachel's sister, Leah. Um, we fast forward there. Uh, Leah is unloved. The word that God actually uses in scripture uh, is she's despised. So uh, what happens here is Jacob loves Rachel, but he despises Leah. Um, he'll work another seven years, be able to eventually marry Rachel, and now he finds himself in this predicament where he's married to both sisters. And what's going to happen here, uh, there's just a lot of drama. As It's not keeping up with the Kardashians this morning. It's just keeping up with Abraham's descendants at this point. So uh, we're going to pick up here in Genesis chapter 30. Um, after that, we see here right out of the gates, like I said, um, verse or chapter 29, verse 31, uh, says, When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he, he enabled her to have children, but Rachel could not conceive. And so what's going to end up happening, just to set us up, the two sisters are going to have this conflict. Married to both to Jacob, Leah's going to feel unloved, but she'll be able to have kids. Rachel is going to feel loved, but she won't be able to have kids. So this is going to create a lot of competition, comparison, all the drama. So before we dive into chapter 30, I, I want to just pray for us, and then we can dive into chapter 30. So Father, thank you so much for your word. Would you help me just get out of your way to teach faithfully, to show us what you want to show us, uh, to give us your burden, and to not let us leave change, God. I just pray right now against any uh, of the distractions of any of the enemy's uh, distractions, God, in the name of Jesus right now. Holy Spirit, Spirit, focus us in, uh, zone us into your word, uh, and help us be our teacher and our shepherd, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so that's Genesis chapter 29, setting up chapter 30. Um, and before we dive in, I want to ask a question. What if I told you this morning, for, for the benefit and the, the good of everyone in this room, what if I told you that there is something in your life that is robbing your happiness every single day? There's something little by little stealing from your family, stealing from your contentment, stealing from every single relationship in your life, even stealing from your finances. This thing that I'm talking about has ruined marriages. It's ruined the best of friendships. And it's ruined businesses. It's even started wars. 
This thing's no small matter. It is a rampant disease, and if we don't find the antidote, the cure, even we as Christians are not immune to its disastrous and harmful effects. The thing I'm talking about is comparison. Comparison. Comparison kills. It is something that eats away at each and every one of us, and through this story this morning in Genesis chapter 30, between these two sisters, and the comparison that is going to eat both of them alive and ruin the relationship between them. I want to show us how comparison starts, how comparison spreads, and ultimately at the end to show us the biblical cure for comparison and to actually give us a chance to taste that medicine here in this auditorium altogether. And so if you're tracking with me, Genesis chapter 30, let's go ahead and dive on in. Like I said, uh, Jacob loves Rachel. He does not love Leah. Leah can have kids. Rachel can't. And so this is going to lead to a lot of the turmoil and competition. And I have a chart here, I think. Um, What's going to end up happening is that Rachel and Leah are going to enter into this competition where basically what's going to happen is they're going to tally up as many sons as possible to try to outdo each other in trying to see who is the best, who's winning the competition. This is the the means by which they're going to see who's winning. And so what happens, uh, there's a lot of story. I want to summarize some of it just so for sake of time. Uh, But at the beginning, Leah, uh, we're told, is given favor from God right away to have kids. So straight off the bat, she has four sons. Four sons, if you can read it, it's Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And the names were very important. Mind you, again, in all of this, back in that culture, being able to have kids was a must. It was like the highest value. It was where women got much of their worth in culture and society. And if you could have sons, it was even better. That's what kept the family name going. It was protection. It was help out on, in the house. So straight off the bat, Leah has these four sons. And look at the names that she gives them. Reuben, a real original here, Leah, is look, a son. That's, that's what Reuben means. So real original, Leah, thanks for that one. But no, it also means he has seen my misery. And so God has seen her misery. He's seen her plight, not feeling loved by her husband. And so right away, the first son, Reuben, look, a son, he's seen my misery. Next one is Simeon, one who hears. Again, God has heard her cries, heard her desperation. Levi, feeling affection for, again, not only for the son, but feeling affection from God himself. And Judah, prays praising God for this son. So again, very beautiful, worshipful names that Leah starts out with these sons, uh, but from there it starts to take a downward spiral. After that, Rachel is going to see this. Um, She'll become furious with Jacob. We see in verse 1 of 30, when Rachel saw that she wasn't having any children for Jacob, she became jealous of her sister. She pleaded with Jacob, give me children or I'll die. A little dramatic there. Then Jacob became furious with Rachel. Am I God, he asked. He's the one who has kept you from having children. So this blame game starts, it spirals. Rachel is going to respond in a way that she actually uh, gives her servant Bilhah to Jacob. So again, this kind of generational thing that keeps happening within this family. Uh, When they can't have kids, they take matters into their own hands and they give a servant to sleep with the husband. And so what happens here is through Bilhah, uh, uh, Rachel's servant, we get the fifth and sixth sons, Dan and Naphtali. Um, And again, notice how these names begin to be a little bit more spiteful and less worshipful. Uh, Dan literally means he vindicated. 
as in God judged both Leah and me, and God has judged that I'm right and Leah's wrong. <laughs> That's literally what she's saying here. Naphtali means my struggle. And let me take us to the verse where we see the meaning of this. Uh, this is verse 8 of chapter 30, uh, where Rachel says, Rachel named him Naphtali, for she said, I have struggled hard with my sister, and I'm winning. This is just getting ugly. They're literally beating over each other's heads with their own babies and saying, I'm better. Uh, and not only that, it gets worse. Um, she's doing that because in the context here, if we read verse 9, it says, Meanwhile, Leah realized that she wasn't getting pregnant anymore. So it, 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 this is what's happening. R Rachel, or Leah actually has more sons at this point. She has four. Rachel has two. But what's happening is Leah is saying, I'm winning because she's literally looking down at her sister's infertility. Do you see how ugly this is getting? That this competition is already saying, I'm better than you because you can't have kids anymore. I'm winning. That's what happened, and it keeps going down. What's gonna happen is uh, through that, Leah now can't have kids, seeming like, and so she's gonna do the same thing. She's gonna respond by giving her servant if we go to the next slide, maybe, if it's not there, it's her servant's name is Zilpah. Um, some interesting names back then. But Zilpah then gives birth to sons seven and eight, and that will be Gad and Asher. Again, these names are just taking little jabs at each other. Good fortune, happy. Uh, again, not because they're happy they have a son, happy because they're winning. And look at me, I'm going to have uh, more worth whatever than you, right? Um, through this, there's even more, it gets even more kind of weird and gross. Uh, Leah's going to eventually um, basically pay Rachel in order to sleep with Jacob next. What's going to happen is Reuben has some mandrakes, the oldest son. Uh, these mandrakes would have been a symbol of fertility. Uh, even women today would take these um, just to help because it's believed to have helped with fertility. Um, but again, it, again, through all this, it's already showing their trust is not in God. God is not even mentioned thus far. It, it's just in their own strength, in their own envy, in their own comparison. Uh, and what happens is uh, Rachel asks for these mandrakes and says, uh, can I have some of those? Verse 15, Leah angrily replied, wasn't it enough that you stole my husband? Now you will steal my son's mandrakes too. Uh, Rachel answered, I will let Jacob sleep with you tonight if you give me some of the mandrakes. Uh, so literally it's getting to the point where it's almost like they're prostituting themselves to literally sleep with their own husband. This is how ugly this, this competition and comparison is getting. And through that, uh, sons 9 and 10, Issachar and Zebulun come through. Uh, reward, honor, again, just rubbing it and smearing it into each other's faces. Uh, and the last son we see in this chapter, uh, thank God, literally, uh, 11 is Joseph. Uh, and this we get in uh, chapter 30, verse 22, then God remembered Rachel's plight and answered her prayers by enabling her to have children. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. God has removed my disgrace, she said, and she named him Joseph. For she said, may the Lord add yet another son to my family. So in the end, God has seen Leah. God sees Rachel, and Rachel has her first biological son, Joseph. Eventually, she'll give birth to another son, Benjamin. Later in Genesis, we'll get to that. Uh, but those are the 12 sons of Jacob, which will set up the 12 tribes of Israel, which will be an important theme throughout uh, Scripture. Uh, we won't get into that today, but just to let you know. Uh, all of this, why? That was a lot of summary, that was a lot of drama, back and forth, sons, 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 beating each other over the head, prostituting themselves, smearing it into each other's faces, and rubbing in infertility. I mean, the, this is 
it begs the question, why is this going on? Why is God allowing this? What is this actually rooted in? Because they seem to really give no care for the sons themselves. It's not like they're rejoicing in this family and these children. They're rejoicing because one is winning. And that winning is pointing to something that each and every one of us struggle with. The idea of comparison, the idea of when we compete against one another, there's something underneath that. And what's underneath that, I would argue, is worth. Look with me in in verse 20 and 23. There are responses here. Verse 20, uh, it says that she named him Zebulun, for he said, God has given me a good reward. Now my husband will treat me with respect. Right? That's Leah. She she wants respect. And if we look at Rachel, verse 23, it says, God has removed my disgrace. And so what's underneath all of this is Leah wants wants to feel the feelings of disrespect leave, and Rachel wants to get rid of feelings of disgrace, this disrespect, this disgrace. That's what's underneath this comparison. It's worth. What we want as human beings, we want to feel worth. We want to feel valuable. We want to feel loved. We want to feel preferred. And what that breeds is something so ugly that it could even lead two sisters to do something as disgusting as what we just saw. And I'm sure if we examined our own lives, it's made us do a lot of disgusting things too. Things that we're not proud of, things that are embarrassing to look back on, but it was fueled because of our need or our lack thereof worth. And I want to show us something before we dive too far into that. I want to address something and be loud and clear. Here's what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that humans don't have worth. We've seen already in Genesis 1:26, every human is made in the image of God, the imago Dei. We have intrinsic, infinite, eternal worth that God has given to every single human being. That's, that's not the worth that I'm talking about here, though. The worth that I'm talking about here is something much different. It's not this dignity and honored, God-given worth of, of being made in his image. What I'm talking about is pride. What I'm talking about is the self-worth that makes each and every one of us insecure the moment we enter into a crowded room. The the kind of things that make us ask the questions, uh, am I secure or or why am I so insecure? Do I feel respected? Uh, Does this group of people make me look good? Uh, All the things that lead to the ugly envy and comparison of the things I have or don't have and will do whatever it takes to make sure that I end up on top. That's the, the, the society and culture would call that self-worth these days, right? You need, to, you need to just believe in your self-worth. Clothe yourself in self-worth. This pride, this ego, Proverbs 16, 18 speaks very clearly of it. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. So like I said, this matters for us to, to distinguish the idea between God-given dignity and self-centered self-worth. This one, self-worth, pride, will destroy us. And that's why it matters this morning for us to see how do we get the cure for this? Because if we don't, it will destroy us. That is a promise. And so Tim Keller has a great quote on pride, on ego. He says, the natural condition of the human ego, that it is empty, painful, busy, and fragile. This is the way the normal human ego tries to fill its emptiness and deal with its discomfort is by comparing itself to other people all 
the time. People sometimes say their feelings are hurt, but our feelings can't be hurt. It is the ego that hurts. My sense of self, my identity, our feelings are fine. It is my ego that hurts. And I think each and every one of us can relate to that. We can look at ourselves and why am I so easily offended by people? Why do I always seem so fragile? My mind is always so busy, as Tim Keller says, and it's so painful when it feels like I take something personally. Why? It's not touching your dignity. More, more times than not, it has nothing to do with your God-given worth. More times it's offending your ego. And, and I am the chief of sinners when it comes to this. I confess all the time that there are constant temptations to think and compare myself to Roy England. They're amazing pastors. They're, they're great leaders. They're great communicators. They're shepherds. They, they have wisdom beyond their years. And, and all the time, I am tempted with the thought, I, I'm not as good a pastor as them. Who's actually going to follow my leadership? Even before this, I, I was thinking, man, Glenn should have had this passage. He probably would have preached a better sermon than me, right? Like Thoughts all the time, just constantly vying to, to distract you and pull you away from the God-given worth that you have. But again, it's because this ego is so weak, so fragile, right? And, and it goes worse. It's not only comparing and looking down on myself. Sometimes it's the ego that likes to stand above others. It's to compare in a way that I'm superior rather than inferior, right? How many times do we say things, and me included, that I'll, I'll look at people, and this is a personal confession, I'll, I'll look at husbands sometimes, and who's been married for a, like not even barely over a year. And I'm saying, well, I wouldn't do that. Well, that was dumb. I would never say that. I would never do that, right? Like God's going to humble your boy pretty soon here, right? Like that, that's just life. And that, my ego needs to be offended in that. But that's, that's the honest truth. Or I'll even look at fathers when I don't even have, my kid's not even born yet. And I'm already judging and saying, well, I'd be a better dad than that. I wouldn't do How many times, though, can all of us relate to that? See, I would never do that. Man, they, they, they're just dumb, man. They don't think about things. I, I would have thought through that better. I would have done that better. Right? Again, we, we can look down on ourselves or we can look up at ourselves. That's what ego does. It's constantly trying to inflate or deflate itself in order to be satisfied. But it's never actually filled up with anything solid. Nothing that can actually satisfy. It just has to wane and go in the wind and just gets blown around. That's how most of us live our lives, is it not? Never secure when we walk in. Always feeling like, what? maybe I could be better. Or maybe I am better, right? Those are the two ditches that each and every one of us fall into. I can even confess in marital conflict with Jayla. I'm so... I'm so glad that God has given me such a gracious wife. That's one of the things I love most about her. Because I need it. Because in the midst of conflict, here's what happens. I'll begin to elevate myself above her. And the moment I think, well, how dare you contradict me, right? How dare you make me repeat myself? How, how dare you make me look bad or look wrong when more times than not she's right and I'm wrong, right? But, but what happens in there, why, why is that? What's in us to immediately see, to, to defend ourselves and say, no, 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 I'm right. 
you're wrong. I'm smarter. I'm the one who knows best, right? There's something in us that immediately, even when we misspeak, there's something in us that has to cover it up real quick so we don't get made fun of, right? Like, this is how we live. We are slaves to comparison. And it all goes back to worth. But it's not God's worth. It's self-worth. The weak ego that keeps trying to find its next snack but can never be full. But the good news, the good news of Jesus tells us we don't have to be enslaved to those egos any longer. We don't have to be enslaved and trapped to the comparison game. We don't have to be envious or jealous or feel like we don't match up to someone else or we fall short of someone else any longer. The good news of Jesus reminds us of the worth that has been intrinsically, eternally given through Jesus himself. And I would argue that the key then to all of this, to this pride, to these egos, to this comparison, it's humility. Nothing new, but humility, here's the tricky part about it, it's slippery. Humility is kind of like the shadow, right? It's always kind of behind you, you don't really see it, and the moment you turn to give it attention and shine light on it, it's gone. Humility's slippery, it's tricky. The moment you even bring it up, it's shy, right? It doesn't like to stay around for very long the moment you bring it up. And so what is the key to true pride? Say humility, but the true key to humility is the cross. And let me show us through that. Tim Keller has another great quote on humility. He says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility, he says, means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. See, the key in all of this is not to think too highly of yourself or too lowly do not think of yourself whatsoever. That is the only humility, that is the only cure for envy, is the only cure for comparison, is the only cure for pride. And so, if we aren't supposed to think of ourselves, it begs the question, what are we supposed to think of? And this is why I love the word of God. He does not leave us without instruction. He says in Philippians 4.8, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts. So here it is. This is what God says. Don't think of yourself, but think of this. Think on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Now, what what can you think of that matches those standards? What can you possibly think of that would even come close to these kind of descriptions? God is saying, don't think of yourself. Think of me. God says, think of me. Every moment, 
Every free moment of your thought life, think of me. You want to be satisfied? Don't get consumed in thinking of yourself. Don't even get too consumed in thinking of others. He says, first and foremost, think of me. Remember me. And if we need a reminder, which we all do every single day of our lives, let me remind us, when we think of God, who we're thinking of. First, God is infinite. He is the self-existing without origin. He never had a beginning. And he will never have an end. Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is immutable, meaning he never changes. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. He is the omnipotent God. The all-powerful, Job 11, 7 through 8. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? God is the omniscient God, the all-knowing. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. Remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. He is the omnipresent God, always, everywhere. Psalm 139.7, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? He is the faithful God. He is infinitely, unchangingly true. Deuteronomy 7.9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. He is the just God, infinitely, unchangingly right and perfect in all he does. Deuteronomy 32.4, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness, without injustice, righteous and upright is he. He is the merciful God, not only just, but he is infinitely, unchangeably compassionate and kind. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. He is the gracious God, infinitely inclined to spare the guilty. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, God saved you by his grace when you believe and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so none of us can boast about it. He is the loving God, infinitely, unchangingly, loves everyone in this room. John three sixteen. for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now do I get done reading that? Does anyone have the thought after hearing that Say, man, I'm awesome. Man, I just, my self-worth is through the roof right now. Does everyone of us feel something that is in our very nature of being his creation? You had a satisfied soul in that moment. As you were reading and hearing the truths of God, something began to stir in your spirit that finally put it to rest. You finally felt rest. You felt satisfied. You felt filled up rather than puffed up. The reason I would go to all these great lengths to share and read so many declarations of who our God is is because we were made for this. 
You see, we weren't made to be born and to live a life always comparing to one another, envying other people, being jealous, praising other people. We were made to do that to God and God alone. We were meant to praise God and God alone. We were meant to take one look at the Almighty God, to fall on our faces and say, I must decrease. He must increase. Truly the Lord is my shepherd and I have all that I need. I lack no good thing. That's what we, each and every one of us was made for. No longer being controlled by these annoying little egos, running to and fro to find the next thing they can be in awe of. We were made to be in awe of him and to finally and fully be satisfied. satisfied. And you may wonder in all this story, tying it back to Rachel and Leah, See this competition, we see the competition, the comparison in our lives. And it makes you wonder, why did, where was God in all of this, in this story? God just almost seems to be almost stoking the fire, it would seem like. He continues to give these women more and more sons. Why? Is he just enabling this competition to keep going? No. You see, God has been using this behind the scenes for his good purposes and plan all along. If we know the story of how this unfolds, God will use the fourth son, Judah, whose name was Praise. You remember him? Judah will set up the line through which Jesus, the Messiah, will be born. Leah's son, the unloved woman who was so jealous of her sister's beauty, her son would give the line to Jesus' birth. And Rachel, envious that she couldn't have her own children, envied her sister. And it would be her son, Joseph, who would save Judah and the other sons from a famine. You see what's happening here? God is using both sons. He's using Judah and he's using Joseph to save one another, and Jesus will save them both. And Jesus will save them both. He's showing us this whole time, loud and clear, so gently behind the scenes, Rachel and Leah, your worth is not in your sons. Your worth is in my son. And the same is true for each one of us in this room. Your worth is not in what you can achieve, what you can bring to the table, how polished you can look, how you match up and line up against other people. Your worth is found in Jesus. And the moment we get that right, the moment we are free from comparison, the moment our souls can finally fly the way they were supposed to. And I want to give us some practical steps of how we can know we've gotten this right. How we can know you, you know the true Jesus. That you know his humility. You've experienced and encountered his true humility and it's making you a truly humble person. Here's 10 quick hitters. It could be a list way longer than this but for the sake of time, 10 quick hitters 
a litmus test, if you will. See how you're doing with humility. Number one, truly humble person is not boastful. They have no need to look down on others. They have no need to rack up and talk about all their achievements and accomplishments. The person who probably doesn't even know what a selfie is, (laughs) if I'm being honest. This is the person who does not care about their standing and how high it is among peers. There's verses to go along with this. I don't have time to read through them all, but feel free for note takers, take a picture of this. You can look up those references. But not only boastful, because I think that's the, the one that seems the most obvious about a prideful person, to think really highly of themselves. But the second one is that a truly humble person is not only not boastful, but they're not self-loathing. What I mean by that is self-loathing, right? If the boastful person looks down on other people, the self-loathing person looks down on themselves. What's the problem with that? Self is still in the center of both of those. Whether you're looking down or looking up, self is still right there. And you're still going to be trapped. You're still going to be caught in comparison of some kind. There's still going to be pride that manifests through that. So not only not boastful, but not self-loathing. The third, the truly humble person, is more interested in you than themselves. And this one's an interesting one. Again, it's, it's probably, you've probably met these kind of people without even knowing it. You probably talk to them maybe even here after a Sunday, and you just remember feeling so refreshed by their presence. You probably felt like, they, man, they really cared about me. Felt so loved and seen by them. They, all they seemed to do was ask questions about me, and they genuinely cared. And you may think back, and I, I don't even know if they mentioned anything about themselves, probably because they didn't, because they have no need to interpose themselves into every conversation, into every spotlight. They're more happy to make it about you than themselves. And that is the humble person who's content. They know their worth, and they don't need to go looking for it anywhere else. Number four, the truly humble person is not worried. This is a big one. They are not worried about image or popularity. I tell my wife all the time, high school never seems to end, does it? Does it? I mean, we we come into places and immediately think, who's the popular people? Who's the cool girls and the cool guys? What what cliques and clubs and groups can I be a part of that would make me look better? Who are the people I need to avoid so I don't look worse? See, the truly humble person doesn't care about any of that. They're so present with the people they're with because they genuinely love them. They genuinely care and are invested in those people, in that conversation, and everyone else is dead to them in that moment. That's the truly humble person. They they have no need to compare. High school is done for them, and they're glad. (laughs) Number five, the truly humble person is not easily embarrassed. They're quick to laugh at themselves and embrace grace. This is how you know you've gotten it right. I think this is a big one for all of us, especially in our society, that we take ourselves way too seriously. (laughs) My goodness, are we not our biggest critics? The moment we make a mistake, we slip up in a conversation, we feel like we were awkward in that encounter, we're the first people to, we'll stay up in the shower thinking, Worried about, well, man, what, what, I wish I could have got that back. We, we stay with our eyes glued to the ceiling, laying in bed at night. Man, what do they think of me? Hopefully they don't remember that. Just immediately we're consumed. God says be free of that. Humility frees you from caring and being 
quick instead to embrace God's grace, to laugh it off and say, I can take Jesus seriously, but I don't need to take myself that seriously. And they move on. Number seven, uh, or number six, excuse me, the truly humble person, uh, very difficult to offend. These people, uh, you can say a ton to them, and they do not take it personally. They are not needy, and that's the key. And instead of being needy, they're actually thankful. They're the people who come up to you, and, and they don't, and, and I know these people too, and maybe I'll get in trouble for this, but they're the people who come up to me, and, and the first thing out of the gates is what they're, they're affirming about me or the church. The first thing is not, here's the list of all the things you're doing wrong, it could be better, right? And that's fine, they can give that feedback, but they're so focused, they're lead foot in everything. Thank you, great job, want to affirm that, right? The, the people that are so content, they're not needy. They're not offended and they're not offensive. They, they, they are gentle, and, and that leads into the eighth one. The truly humble person is tender-hearted and gracious in conflict, right? These are the people, they have experienced the grace and humility of Jesus who has served them, and they could not imagine doing anything else for others. They couldn't imagine. Of course I would be humble. Of course I would be tender-hearted and gracious with people after experiencing the tender heart and grace of God. Nothing else I would ever give people. Number nine, they live free. They have nothing to prove and nothing to hide. These are the people who, they live, they're just free. They're not tied down to any human standards, right? They don't care about name brands. They don't care about trends. They don't care about what the neighbors and what keeping up with the Joneses. They don't care. They live free because they know none of that actually adds to their worth. None of that adds anything. It can't touch their God-given worth, and they're secure. And because of that security, they're free. And the tenth and final, the humble people, they don't think of themselves as humble people. They probably don't even think of themselves as humble because they don't think of themselves whatsoever. And the most free people in the world, and, and this list, I pray it would be true of all of us. Because I, I could imagine what would happen to this church if we, if we did. I imagine what conversations would look like during the turn and greet. I imagine what conversations would look like after the service is out and people aren't consumed with, oh, I don't want to appear awkward. Just grab the kids and go. Oh, I don't, wanna, I don't know how to talk to people. It's, it's really hard, this whole church thing and making friends. And I'm a little nervous to join a city group because what will people think of me? Will, will I know my Bible enough? Will I be studied enough? Will I be uh, impressive enough? Imagine if all of us took a breath and we laid down our egos together. We said, I'm not easily offended. I'm so grateful for every person in this room. Imagine the kind of, like, picture with me. Maybe you've been coming here for years, and you really haven't met anyone, and you don't really know how to change that. Imagine going up to someone after the gathering today, shaking their hand and say, hey, it's kind of embarrassing, but I've been coming here for a while. I don't really know anyone. Uh, I've always been kind of maybe a little intimidated to meet people. I'm not good at this whole making friends thing. Uh, what's your name? Tell him them your story a little bit, saying, well, we've been living here for a while, uh, our kids go here, whatever, but just breaking the ice because your ego doesn't need to be fed in those moments. 
You don't need to have a security that you already don't already have in Christ. And it frees you to go up to strangers. It frees you to say, you know what? Uh, maybe this feels random, but would you like to go out for coffee? And, and I just want to hear your story. Would you and your wife like to come over for dinner? Would you like to join our city group? Would you like to start a huddle? Things that you wouldn't normally do, but because your ego is out of the picture, you're free to finally do it. That, that's the kind of things I imagine as a church. We're no longer coming in hiding. No longer coming in feeling insecure and, and wondering what people really think of us because we're free from that. And, and actually we're entitled to move towards people rather than away from them. We care more about them than we do ourselves. We're a thankful church. We're a church that builds friendships and moves towards one another. That's what, that's what killing egos can do. And that's what I pray would happen here. Because you're going to have these moments right after the gathering here, in the car ride home, later at home. And you're going to have about five seconds in those moments to decide what you're going to do. About five seconds to do one of two options. Number one, you're going to operate in the flesh like we talked about, operate in your ego, and you're immediately going to tie your worth to, your, to that ego. And what's going to happen is the egos are like kites. They're, they're, like Tim Keller said, they're fragile, they're weak, they're busy, always fluttering around. And what happens is they'll either fly high on people's compliments or they'll fall crashing down by the lack thereof. They'll go sky high when everything's going right for you and they'll fall down the moment something goes wrong. That's option one. Option two you can cut the kite string. You can say, no longer am I tied to what people think of me, people say of me, what I think of me, what I say of me. I cut that string. Let that, let that kite, this is no time to be playing with toys. We're the church. Tether yourself in that moment instead to Christ. And I know whose I am. I know who he is. And if he is mine and I am his, I have all that I need. Cut the string. When you're tempted to be in conflict, cut the string. You don't need to be on top in that argument. You have nothing to prove to your spouse or that person you're talking to. You have all that you need. You don't need to try to get it from them. So I want to do, I want to give us the chance to actually try this. Two options, one and two. Tether yourself to your ego or tether yourself to Christ. So right now, I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come up. And for the next few minutes, I just want to give us the chance to ask the Lord to help you identify one thing, one way, one person you've been comparing yourself to. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's someone in this room. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a, a fellow employee, a coworker. And as you think of them, I invite you right now, go ahead and close your eyes, kneel, bow your heads. Ask the Lord to identify that one thing, that one person, the one way you've been comparing yourself. Maybe it's been for days, weeks, months, maybe it's been for years. I want you to identify that. I want you to confess it to him. To God, I confess. That I've been comparing myself to this person, to this standard, to this ideology. I confess that. 
And for the first time, I turn away from it. I surrender it. I lay it down. I cut the kite string. And instead, in this moment, God, I tether myself to you. I remember your worth. I remember the worth that you've given me. I remember that I am not the sum of my failures, my flaws, or my weaknesses. I am the sum of who you say I am. I'm loved, I'm cherished, I'm kept, I'm chosen, I'm holy, I'm blameless, I'm without fault, I'm righteous, I'm secure, I'm held by you forever. And Father, you say to me in the same way, when your son was baptized, this is my son, and who I love, and whom I am well pleased. Take these moments to speak to him, to pray that. And the worship band will instruct us when you can look up and join us in singing.